Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. Hey guys, this is David, and it is 6 a.m. I'm sitting in my basement recording the introduction lecture for... Well, maybe lecture is a bit generous of a term, but uh, recording a fireside chat here to introduce our six-week course that our church is running on theology and culture. So the goal today is just to lay some initial groundwork. Uh, The longer I thought about it, the longer my outline got. So to be honest, I don't know how long this is going to go, but we will be tracing through the writings and thought world of a theologian who practiced most of his work in the 90s and early 2000s named Stanley Grenz. And about a year ago, I finished a master's thesis studying Stan and tracing through my research will be kind of the outline for this course. So on some level, that's a dangerous move because I have way too many thoughts and about this topic, so I'm going to continually do my best to be concise and not take us too deep into the weeds. Um, but just know if you're tuning in to listen to the this series of recordings that you are welcome to join just for the audio, but these lectures, if we can call them that, are being prepared for a small group dialogue kind of discussion-based course that our local church is leading. So, you've been forewarned. All right. So, I'm going to keep us moving along through a handful of kind of main points today. The first one is just listing out some assumptions going into this course. Uh, I'll just be really upfront that I'm assuming anyone listening or interest uh, anyone listening to this is at least interested in becoming a follower of Jesus. I only mention this because there'll be many things that we'll discuss that are totally worthy of examination and further questions that I may seem to just brush past. And I'm kind of operating under the conviction here that at least a seed of faith and trust in Jesus must be present, uh, or the basic logic of everything we're going to talk about here will just go out the window, and this will just sound kind of like mumbo-jumbo. And also just acknowledge my bias that despite my best efforts to summarize and teach objectively about Grenz's work, my own experiences and preferences, bias and desires are going to color and, you know, change my perspectives. And I assume that whoever's listening will be both encouraged and maybe frustrated by what we discuss based on your own experiences, preferences, biases, desires. And in a lot of ways, this very fact is what we will be examining in this course, right? It's the question of how is God sufficient in spite of our own personal and and kind of broader cultural mess that we find ourselves in. And lastly, these lectures and discussions may challenge you in some ways, but my ultimate aim is that the marvelous beauty and brilliance of God will shine forth. And quite honestly, it's my hope, prayer, longing that we will see how Jesus once did and the Holy Spirit now does sufficiently meet us in the midst of our our mistakes, our our biases, our, our culture, um, or as we might say, our current cultural mess. So that is the hope and prayer of this course. And I'm just going to open before diving in with a quick word of prayer. So Lord, I just ask that you would guide my words today. We're going to be talking about very cognitive, rational, heady things, and I just ask that your spirit would be in them, because I believe there's something profound along these lines and these topics that you want to do in our hearts as well. There's something very personal and intimate about some of these ideas we'll be discussing. So, pray you'd guide my words. Pray you'd be with whoever's listening, wherever they might be. Amen. So, just to open, first question I have for you, I want to do a little exercise, is how did you learn to pray? So go ahead, even pause this 
recording for a second and take a minute to write down or just think through the first three bullet points that come to your mind. How did you learn to pray? All right. For those who are compliant, you pause the recording and you have those in mind. And now I want to ask you a second question. How should Christians form their beliefs? Or at the very least, how were you taught that your beliefs form? And again, take a minute, write this down, or just think through it in your head and kind of hold it. And now, let's pause and just have a simple moment to observe. Typically, the answer for most people to those questions do not line up. The question of how you learn to pray is likely going to be very experiential. It's going to tell, it's going to involve stories about people in your life who you know intimately, be they family or friends. And then the answer to the second question is going to be very different. It's probably going to say something like, my beliefs, uh, my spiritual beliefs form through scripture or my reading of the Bible. And at face value here, what I just want us to notice is you often do not do what you think you are doing, or you do not do what you say you do, um, which sets us up to be hypocritical uh, and thinking that we do something we don't. So we will be examining why this is and how we might mature to have a more accurate and I would argue more robust picture of how our Christian faith functions. So couple other introduction things here. We're going to talk through, this course is titled uh, Theology and Culture, uh, kind of navigating those topics, looking through the work of Stanley Grenz. So I just want to briefly define these terms and how we'll be using them as we go. So theology, really basic. In the original Greek derivative of this word, theos, referring to God or divinity, and logia, meaning divine words, will later get translated and become kind of morph into the late Middle English theology or the study of God. And throughout church history, theology became known, especially as institutions and academies form. Um, theology, theology became the science of God. In many respects, and it was thought of as the queen of the sciences because it had no boundaries for its knowledge. Its aim was to understand and describe the relationship between God, created reality, and humanity. And traditionally, in the in the dominant white Western European tradition, this got structured following a very linear pattern to organize the kind of the conversation about God. So it typically starts with the doctrines of God, so his characteristics, um, what he is like. And then it moves on to doctrine of humanity or anthropology, which is going to talk about the fall and sin. And then Christology, talking about the incarnation and Jesus. And then soteriology, the doctrines of salvation. And then depending on the theologian, they might include something called pneumatology, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And then ecclesiology, the doctrines of the church, and finally eschatology. And now this is only this is just one narrow way to think about it that this term has traditionally been kind of defined. But theology, in a more simple and I think practical, helpful sense, is just what you think about God in the most general sense. And in that sentiment, everyone has theological beliefs, whether they are uh, a Christian, a Buddhist or an agnostic, or someone who doesn't believe in the supernatural at all. So, in some ways, this is almost more profound of a definition to, to for example, consider someone who might conclude there is no divine, but then might go and place ultimate meaning and value in something or someone else. May it be a family, career, uh, or dare, say, uh, dare I say a political party, um, elevating this thing, this idea or, or physical noun, um, to a place of ultimate authority in their life. So they may never call it God, but psychologically and sociologically speaking, it's fulfilling the same role. So 
theology, the simple sentiment and assumption here going into these conversations is whether you have reflected upon your theology or not, whether you have a good theology or not, um, all humans have a theology. They have thoughts about the divine. Second term is culture. So, very fascinating word here. Culture comes from the Latin colere, which quite literally means to cultivate the soil. So it's a farming reference, uh, agricultural reference, and that has morphed in, in our modern day through various kind of blending of European languages um, to our understanding of culture as the customs, arts, social institutions, achievements of a particular group of people, right? And this could be a national identity, this could be a nation or country, um, or it could just be a subculture, a social group that has formed. It could be a community of friends. So we might even say beyond just these really explicit observable things, like institutions and um, the arts and customs that people have, Culture also kind of encompasses the attitudes and behavior, or you could say it forms the attitudes and behavior of a particular social group. Uh, My friend Christian Gonzalez kind of explains culture this way. He says, culture typically characterizes a community's normative relationship to a specific set of spiritual, physical, and social practices. These shape the particularities of our epistemology. We'll talk a lot about that word a lot later but really simply epistemology is how we know what we know so let me read that again these shape the particularities of our epistemology how we know what we know establishing the framework for what is taken to be common sense so this is something we're going to talk about a lot and how different cultures create different definitions of what we might call common sense which is why People from different cultures have such a hard time communicating sometimes. And again, when I say that, your brain might go to a person person from different language cultures, so speaking different languages. But even people who speak the same language, let's say English in the United States, might have been raised, might have been um, cultivated, right? They might have been formed in very different cultures with very different values, which now... They each take very different things to be common sense, which leads to massive conflict and disagreement. So, culture is both explicit, but also largely implicit, almost like an iceberg. There's a lot that lies under the surface that is not very observable, not reflected on by many people. Um, So, to be sure, it's really complex. But I think if we pause and take note, we can observe some definable patterns about cultures. So, for example, this is a very broad, sweeping statement, but um, it's pretty unanimously agreed that in the modern world, we live in what is known as a secular culture, by and large. And that is a, as Charles Taylor, uh, was a famous sociologist in the 20th century, he defines secularism as a way of being in the world that tries to offer significance without transcendence. So it's a world built on doubt, not belief, where um, the kind of Christian concept of sanctification or um, holiness becomes progress of civilization. So in a sense, there is still belief, but it is no longer in um, the divine It is in the humane, it's in humanity. And the focus has shifted from what is transcendent or beyond us to what is imminent and right before us. So if you want to hear some very profound cultural reflection, I will give you guys a podcast plug. There's a great podcast that was produced and created by um, two pastors, one guy named John Mark Comer and another guy named Mark Sayers from Australia. Uh, it's called This Cultural Moment. So if you want to dive into um, some very insightful reflection on our cultural moment, I encourage you to go check out that podcast and start at the beginning of season one. Okay, 
So those are some simple definitions of theology and culture. And as has kind of become clear, we're going to be tracing through the work of one specific theologian, a guy named Stanley Grenz. And depending on who you talk to, there's some varying opinions on Stan. Now, pretty much everyone would love Stan as a person and acknowledge his deep, deep love for Jesus and his passion for God. Um, But something Stan was doing that was slightly controversial at the time was he was introducing this topic of what's called theological method into evangelicalism. Now, that's a whole lot of words I'm throwing at you. We will be diving into next week um, kind of some definitions of evangelicalism and what that word even means. There's a lot of ways to define it. And in the current cultural context, it's often taken as more of a sociological political term than it is a theological term. But, but keep in mind what we're discussing here when we talk about Stan and his, his thought. This is the culture of the 90s, the 1990s. So it's a very different time period than the one we're currently in. And Stan was trying to introduce this idea of theological method to um, kind of the broad scope of Protestant Christians in America. And theological method in a simple form is where theology and culture overlap. So it's the, it's the Venn diagram, it's that center space at the Venn diagram of where our theological thinking and our culture are blending together. So it's, it's primarily engaging in two different fields. In, in our present sense, it's asking, how do we know what we know? This is, in philosophy, the question of epistemology, Right? How do we know what we know? Why do we believe what we believe? How did we come to that conclusion of what's true or what's not true? And then it's also engaging questions about hermeneutics or for the biblical authors or or authors of a text. How did their culture shape what they knew and then the meaning they were trying to communicate in those words they wrote down, right? And it's kind of a similar category, but written words are static, Right? They're almost like time capsules back to a, a former culture. Um, so method is, on some level, the really basic movement is just acknowledging that culture and perceptions of truth and reality influence one another. And they talk to each other, and they're inextricably kind of woven together. And so why is this important? Why, as believers, do I think we need to engage in theological method to some degree? Well, this is a pastoral observation I think I've had in the last um, five to ten years of working in ministry and missions and in a church context. And it is this. We live in a period of time where secular culture has been perceived by many to be more methodologically honest than the church Or said another way, your average person between 20 and 40 years old turns to YouTube more often than the scriptures, turns to TED Talks more often than sermons, and turns to themselves for defining truth more often than a community. And I think that's... I'm not commenting on whether that's good or bad. I think in many ways I'd say it's bad. Um... But I am specifically honing in on the fact that I think as Christians, we need to, especially as as those who are growing and maturing and maybe taking on roles of stewardship for the lives of other people, there should be some sobriety with that where we need to really take stock and, and try to be as honest as we can about what it is we're doing and where, where and how we're forming our beliefs. And it's my, again, conviction from the start that as we do that, rather than feeling more insecure about our convictions and our choice to follow Jesus and become his apprentices, we will become more confident and more sure, and we will see the beauty and brilliance of God as we embrace reality. So, that's a brief introduction to theological method. Um, One of my professors in seminary, his name was Don Payne, and... He teaches a, I took a course from him on theological method. And I think 
um, I think a couple reasons that we need to engage method is because your average believer, follower of Jesus, assumes that all their beliefs stem solely from the scriptures. And now Don and I would agree, it's not that we are trying to diminish the authority of scripture um, for the follower of Jesus. In many ways, it's it's a, the primary source that we have. Um, but often, I think, we are, we are at risk of missing the fact of almost creating a religion shaped around the Bible rather than around the reality that the scriptures attest to and point to. Um, so the primary reality that the scriptures are trying to mediate and give uh, the reader access to is revelation of God in history and in the present reality. And we know that through the story of God recorded in scriptures that he manifests and reveals himself to humans in time and space as Father, as Son, and as Holy Spirit. Um, and, and secondly, that there are other sources that are already influencing and in shaping your interpretation of the Bible. So if we can't acknowledge and be aware of those other influences, rather than strengthening the authority of the Scripture, it actually, it actually weakens it because we're susceptible to all sorts of strange beliefs um, and all sorts of cultural influence that we're not aware of. So we think we're just reading the Scriptures as they're passed down, but actually we're imposing upon Scripture all sorts of beliefs that have come from other sources. So that is the, in what I would say, the goal of theological method is to be methodologically aware and honest so that we can um, have the most accurate and true understanding of what's real. All right. So the last thing I want to say about theology and method here um, is your understanding of God like all knowledge, is influenced, to say the least, by your very personal, intimate experiences and your interpretation of those experiences. In many ways, this is the basic organizing principle of logic for the human psyche, narrative. Said another way, your thoughts about God are inextricably connected to the thoughts of your culture and your personal narrative. So it's time as we dive into a course on theology, which again can tend to become very abstract and philosophical, um, it's time to start by getting very honest about our own stories in hopes that we might preserve good theology about God. So I'm going to just share some glimpses into my own story here before jumping into this course to try and demonstrate this very fact. Um, so I have, professionally, I have a master's degree where I studied and went through coursework in theology, but my theological thinking was largely shaped and much more largely shaped by my own personal story prior to that academic training, right? So we're going to circle back to this again and again. Um, but that's part of the invitation in this first week and part of what we'll focus on for our discussion from this first lecture is what has shaped your theological thinking about God? All right, so I'm going to jump in. Um, I'll try and be as brief as I can. Um, I'm going to give some more thematic overviews of some and observations I've had reflecting on my own life now as an adult in my 30s. And there's really probably three or four key stories I'll kind of culminate the story with uh, that happened in my 20s that have shaped me. So here we go. One quick caveat at the start. I think I just want to warn us as we reflect on our past, um, warn us against demonizing or uh, kind of 
negatively coloring our development and our story. Um, and just simply to say that development and maturity and, and struggle is a part of the human process. There's nothing actually inherently wrong with that. So we almost need to embrace it for what it was. So I like to use the language of sovereign foundations, actually. So those early years of life where you didn't have a lot of choice or control, um, we actually just entrust that those are what they are and that they had a formational purpose that may not have been caused by God but can certainly be redeemed by God. So that's my caveat at the start. Almost a quick warning to not self-deprecate and to not demonize the mistakes of others. For sure, there is space for processing through trauma, whether it's little t trauma or big t trauma, um, and that is a good and healthy thing. But, um, yeah, let's try to look for the redemptive lining as we reflect on our own narratives. Um, So, first 30 years of life, I would say, are in many ways a long season of defining of who we are as people. It's kind of this... This is a really bad formula because I don't know the percentages and the reality is they're probably different for everyone. But I would say this. All of us are at least one part genetic slash divine determination. We're at least a second part environmental and social nurturing. And we're a third part choice or will. Now, given your story, those ratios of those three things might be different, but we're we're definitely a combination of all three, and that's how we have become the people we are today. So I grew up a skinny little white kid from what I call the sticks of Minneapolis. I was out, lived in a rural community about 45 minutes outside of a major urban center. Um, had a really simple family, and my my mom would say I have the gift of willingness and hard work. Um, my wife might call it OCT, but when I commit to things, I can't stop and I can't get them out of my mind. And I was a pretty quiet, reserved kid. And when I reflect back on these early years, even leading into my teams, um, the word inadequacy really kind of seems to define a banner that I somehow took on. So Inadequacy is this idea of being undesirable, second-class, inferior, overlooked, unnoticeable, second-rate, right? It is that you are not enough. And I think that messaging, wherever it came from, I couldn't point to any specific traumatic experience, but um, it, it really defined and set me on a course of Uh, opposition of trying to overcome and prove that that's not true to people, right? Um, Another kind of couple important formational things, I was raised in a Lutheran home, so I attended a um, ELCA Lutheran church in this rural community north of Minneapolis, and I spent literally hundreds if not thousands of my summer days volunteering with my mom who helped run a local uh, food shelf for low-income families in our area. And I think until recently, I didn't recognize the profound impact that had on shaping um, some of the values I hold even uh, for the disadvantaged and the poor. And my parents were sweet and kind and gentle, um, but in my, the story I perceived from my upbringing in that church uh, was that Christianity was primarily about a list of moral guidelines that we should follow. And your, your adherence or not adherence to Christianity was entirely contingent upon your ability to check off that list or, um, or not. And I always joke that in my experience, the Holy Spirit was the Holy Spirit was just a dove on a felt board that hung in the narthex of the church. Um, I didn't have very many, if any, genuine experiences of God. And so my Christianity, how I took it in as a young child, was largely just cultural. 
and um, something I'd participate in, but it was void of any real substance or reality in my own personal life. So as I grew up and developed into my teens, I distanced myself from the church, and I started to devote my time and my rhythms to other things like academics, friends, self-image, athletics, um, you know, the typical things of a teenager. And naturally, as I did that, as I devoted my time and devotion elsewhere, my belief and explicit engagement with God really faded. And so, just to pause here for a second, I think all of us in these crucial developmental years of our teens, we're learning to survive uh, this onslaught of reality, of, of the pressures of life, and our brains are changing a lot, and our social relationships and dynamics are changing a lot and we're struggling to try and form a nice sense of identity around um, what's often summarized as three things. I've heard various sociologists and also uh, great teaching by Pastor Tim Keller um, talk about how we form our identity around three things, what we do, what we have, and what others think of us. And now this is essential before we jump into a course about theology and theories and all these abstract ideas because, as I was trying to point out earlier, there is no theological thinking or thinking of any kind that is separate from um, your personal struggle to answer these three questions. What do you do? What do you have? And what do others think of you? your subjective kind of personal sense of who you are uh, is woven up in, and even sometimes the beliefs we form will serve these three questions, right, of trying to define who we are. And that's why when we, our beliefs are sometimes challenged or someone challenges us to change our beliefs, we take it so personally because it's not just a matter of rational discourse and philosophical arguing, it is a matter of personal identity um, because these defining key things preceded a lot of those beliefs that have formed. All right, so I'm cruising through, but teenage years, the struggle of defining the ego. And then I hit college, and um, in many ways, I'm still struggling with this underlying narrative of inadequacy. And I remember being in my first class the first day, and our our professor was giving us a big speech about how how college was going to be so hard, and we were not going to be able to get the grades we did in high school, and we think we're so smart, but we're going to be humbled. And I remember sitting in the back row of that course um, just cursing this professor out under my breath and making a vow on that day that I would prove her wrong. And again, this is just, you know, one example of how I lived my life, almost defined myself against this thing I believed of inadequacy. And I I lived from this place to prove that it wasn't true. So it's uh, an underlying motive of compensation, competition, always evaluating myself with respect to other people, um, plagued with insecurity and feelings of rejection. And this drove me to try and perform and to prove and to um, be perfect in many ways. I, I often joke that I almost viewed myself as a FIFA character or a video game character and I was constantly trying to boost my stats and the minute I boosted them in one area they would start to drop off in another and so I'd have to go focus on that area and try and boost them up and you can imagine when your your internal world is filled with kind of this performance mentality and trying to perfect yourself that there's not a lot of space for intimacy with God in there, especially the God that's revealed in Scripture, who has a narrative completely antithetical to that one, Um, has a narrative of value, not inadequacy. And so in college, um, continued to live kind of out of this brokenness, and my relationship with God at this point is non-existent. And um, I'm not sure if I was fully aware of it yet, but I was functionally uh, agnostic in my belief 
And especially if you tried to observe my practices, I was an agnostic. And during university, I was largely shaped by a few other factors. Really simply, I, was, I studied physics and mathematics, and so I was, I was trained as a scientist in many ways. I spent my summers and time after graduating working in a handful of different professional research labs. And, and this, even in this course, I think you'll probably hear it, um, this is what cultivated my own personal commitment to trying to understand reality and not being afraid of reality. And just now as someone who has come on the other side of rediscovering my faith, um, I, I think I'm pretty committed that God is not afraid of us embracing reality. And we'll talk more about that later. Also at this time, kind of two key relationships came into my life, a guy named Chris Dirks and Matt Holst. Um, Chris was the first person I, I would say I really respected, who, who I saw as someone who authentically and genuinely followed Jesus. And Matt was the first Christian I think I met who really lived from a different story. Uh, he was someone who, I couldn't have said this at the time, but now looking back, he was someone who knew who he was. He had a, a, a steady sense of identity, which, which you could perceive when you were with him and the way he treated you, the way he interacted with others. And again, these are interesting friendships coming into my life at a time where um, I'm realizing that I actually don't really believe in God anymore. And... I kind of started this journey of reevaluating and reassessing uh, the Christian faith. And, and I had never really given it a deep exploration. Um, and there's this, this old C.S. Lewis quote that I think summarizes it well, and I read it during this time. Lewis writes in um, his book, Mere Christianity, Christianity, if true, is of, lit- is of infinite importance, if false, of no importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. And again, for my rational, logical brain, I just thought, yep, that makes sense to me. So before I kind of kick it to the curb and leave it behind, I'd be better begin to actually explore and see what I think of it. And this started a two-year process of engaging my Christian faith through conversation with people like Chris and Matt. And ultimately, it culminated in me uh graduating from college, having some plans and acceptance offers to continue graduate work in the field of uh, biomedical engineering at various institutions around the U.S., and deciding to defer that acceptance and scholarship to go do this missionary experience with an organization called YWAM. And I knew close to nothing about YWAM except that Chris was planning on going, and this friend of mine named Matt had spent the last six years working with the organization. Um, And I show up to this community, this six-month kind of intensive um, DTS, they call it. It's a discipleship training school. And I am, quite honestly, freaked out. Um, Theologically, the heritage of YWAM um, we would call it a parachurch organization. It is uh, a movement that is interdenominational, inter- international, um, that arose in the late 20th century to really help fulfill kind of this commission and this value of global missions that many American churches were not uh, engaging with or didn't carry a value for. Um, and the theological history of it, while it is international, interdenominational, and it has a very generous spirit to the organization, um, the roots of it are in the Assemblies of God Church church, through the founder, Lauren Cunningham. And he, again, explicitly chose to not make the movement or the organization Assemblies of God. But depending on the base and the social community you find yourself in, Um, I would definitely define them theologically as charismatic. Uh, And really simply that just means uh, a Christian who believes in the active working of the Holy Spirit through the gifts of the Spirit. 
and um, someone could be a charismatic and be a Baptist, a, a Pentecostal, a Roman Catholic, uh, an Anglican. You could um, identify it with different theological traditions and I think still hold this value and this belief in uh, the charismatic. And I was being exposed to that for really the first time ever. And my heart was being tenderized through these experiences of people, strangers coming up to me during a worship time and um, asking if they could pray for me and giving me what what I would call now a prophetic word, um, something I'd never really experienced before. Or some people might call it a word of knowledge where this person is praying for me and then they're telling me something about myself that to just to be honest, they could not possibly know in their own natural faculties. Um, so my, my heart's being tenderized, and then at the same time, my brain and my rationality is exploding. Um, I'm in like a month and a half of what I'd call cognitive dissonance, um, where in this passionate community of faith, my deep doubts and skepticism about God is being exposed. And there were three or four kind of key stories I'll finish with here that I think shaped me and set me on the trajectory that I've been following the last 10 years of my life since I was 22. So the first one was about a month into this school, I um, we've been placed in these small group teams that we're going to go on a three-month outreach trip with. And it was our our first or second gathering and the agenda for the day was to share our life stories and I sit down tell everyone you know a list of my FIFA attributes and the things I've accomplished and you know it was like show and tell for an insecure uh, young guy and and I I finished sharing my story um, if you could call it that that's probably being generous um and I went off to a work duty. I was two hours a day helping clean up the trash and recycling on the campus. And my friend Eric Zosh is driving this truck and I'm standing in the back of the truck. It's full of bottles and plastic and garbage. And I just remember having a pit in my stomach, um, feeling almost embarrassed uh, about what I had shared, right? Uh, exposing really how insecure I actually felt about myself and how quite lame and boring my life was and how lame and boring a life is that is centered on, you know, that reactivity to inadequacy, that competition, that compensation, that performance. Because um, it was very clear, at least, I don't know if it was clear to everyone else in the room, but it became very clear to me that I had no idea who I was in that moment. And so there's this sinking pit in my stomach about how how sad and, and lame my life story was. And this thought germinates in my mind that says, is that what you want the rest of your story to look like, David? And I don't quite know, it's a little intangible to describe it, but it was very clear to me that this thought felt different um, in the moment, I was highly skeptical that this was the voice of God or that I just thought it was my subconscious, my, my ego and id having a little battle internally. Um, but so I don't, I don't know how to explain any more clearly than that, that it felt like this voice germinated from a different source. And the longer now that I've been following Jesus, the more confident I am that it was probably the first time in my life I had explicitly sensed or discerned the voice of God for myself. Um, and it addressed me in the third person. Um, and it, it repeated over and over and over. It was incessant. It would not leave me alone. Um, is, this, is that what you want the rest of your story to look like? And I kind of brush it off. And a couple weeks later, I'm um, still on the struggle bus, so to speak, wrestling, cognitive dissonance, um, really doubting now 
having huge moments of doubt where two years into my exploration of the Christian faith, I'm, I'm quite unsure if I even buy or believe any of this stuff. And we had a night class, and a good friend of mine now, I barely knew him then, but a guy named Andy Bird was preaching a message on, on lordship, which was a concept I'd never even heard of. And he was, I mean, if you know Andy or have heard him teach or preach, He's a man of fire and passion, and I don't remember hardly anything about the message, except that it, the way he was talking about Jesus was completely new and foreign to me. And I also remember having a deep moment of self-awareness as he, as he shared. And I remember feeling so aware of how pale and dim and um, skeptical my internal world was towards God and how how rich and vibrant and full of passion his internal world was. And I left this kind of gathering space. Um, I'm on this campus in Kona, Hawaii, where I am for this school. And I go sit down and I'm reading through the Gospel of Mark. I had just been doing some Bible reading plan through the New Testament and And I get to this story about uh, in Mark 14 where Mary breaks this alabaster jar of perfume at Jesus' feet. And and I read it, and at the end of the story, Jesus says, Surely I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached, um, this story will be remembered. Something like that, I'm paraphrasing. But he makes this distinction, and Mark, John Mark, carries on this distinction and thought it was important to note that this is one of the most important stories of all the Gospels. And I remember just feeling frustrated because I, I'm i reading this text. I'm, I'm trying to do theology, right? I'm reading the Scripture, trying to understand the meaning. And it's, it's obscure, and it, it feels empty, and I don't get it. I don't understand the meaning or significance of this story. It just seemed like a stupid story to me about a woman doing this kind of ridiculous thing act that didn't make any sense to me. It didn't make sense to me because of my lack of awareness of the cultural context. It didn't make sense to me because of the kind of cold, skeptical bitterness in my heart. Um, And then I had a strange sensation rise up in my body. And it took me a while to realize it, Um, but I was going to cry. And I, I got up and I walked down to the bottom of this campus, sat down on this curb, and I just start weeping. Um, and it was kind of, in many ways, uh, a lot of emotion pouring out that had accumulated over these last two years. And I, I started praying something like this. I said, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm so, so tired. If I'm going to follow you, I need some assurance. I need someone. And I just said this prayer. I said, I need someone to come find me in this parking lot. I have to know that you're real and you're with me or I'm done. And again, in some ways at a surface value, this sounds like giving God an ultimatum, but in many ways it it wasn't like a, a premeditated ultimatum. It was more of the, the symptom and the uh, response of two years of, of trying to open my mind and my heart up to respond to God. And... In many ways, it was the, a bottom-of-the-barrel moment or being at the end of my rope. And, man, I could go into all the details um, another time, but really simply, within a few moments of that prayer, uh, it's about midnight or 1 a.m. on this campus. Everyone's in bed. And within about a minute of that saying that prayer, um, a man walks from another private property next to this university campus through the woods, up through a couple parking lots, into my parking lot, and it's a complete dead end. There's a building, a fence, a dumpster, and this like uh, retaining wall, and it's, it's just a dead end. There's nowhere to go. And suffice it to say, I felt a crazy combination in that moment of imminence and transcendence. I froze with both the fear of the Lord 
And also something inside me internally was exploding with this awareness of God's unfailing love. And this man walks right in front of me, just a few feet, up to the fence and dumpster to my right, turns around and looks me straight in the eyes and just smiles and assuredly kind of nods in my direction and walks back across the parking lot over through this little um, garden bed into another parking lot and into this the woods or the jungle of Hawaii and disappears. Um, and I was frozen in, again, just kind of caught up in this sense of both fear and love at the same time. And the tears just began to flow again and this weighty presence almost was pressing me to the curb. And all I remember was feeling seen, chosen, embraced. And I, I tell people often it was like it was like the the cord got plugged into the wall for the first time and the power came on. Um, and in many ways that's the turning point, defining moment of um, you know, in in an epistemological sense, where it's completely subjective. It was completely personal. I can't scientifically prove it. I can't repeat that experience for anyone. Um, but there was an epistemological shift that happened in my mind and heart, in my body, where the reality of God was laid bare to me. Um, and it was clearly connected to this man, Jesus, and this presence that I felt in my body called the Holy Spirit. And um, that a lot of events unfolded in the next five months as I continued in that school, ended up totally redirecting my life. I dropped out of my PhD program and went back to go on staff with this nonprofit organization called YWAM. And a couple more quick stories here, and we'll try and wrap up under just under an hour. Um, but I came back to go on staff and we had this retreat experience. We went up with about 12 of us and I had this wild experience in worship um, where I felt, and I had never felt anything like this in 23 years of my life, um, but I had this wild kind of charismatic um, new mythological experience with the Holy Spirit in this very calm, docile worship set. Uh, where I felt the Lord press something on my heart to do, I responded, and then it was like my hands got shoved into electricity sockets, and I could just feel the presence of God pulsating right up my nerve plexus, up my arms, across my chest, to my face, to my lips, and I, and and the presence of God just dropped in the room, and people, um, all kinds of charismatic gifts began manifesting and prophetic words and um, craziness and and that was a key moment for me even the order of these events was key for me in God uh, really establishing his reality in my mind and in my heart in a in a very objective physical way prior to God establishing um, and manifesting in such a almost emotional, physiological way like that. And again, I'm not saying that that's a formula for forming belief in God, but um, given my story, my baggage, my biases, my skepticism, my doubt, and my history, it was the formula I needed to unlock um, my faith and my my trust in Jesus. And... Um, the last story I want to share, which kind of in some ways I look back now, set me on a trajectory of a lot of my academic pursuits and even pastoral ministry and even the, the impetus behind running a course like this. Um, I was in Cambodia and um, leading a DTS at this point a few years later, and there was a student I'll call him Luke, who was really struggling with his faith. And I had walked with Luke uh, throughout the beginning part of the DTS course, and he just had all these rational kind of the classic like philosophical arguments where he struggled with with his faith. And we're sitting with him 
on his outreach, his outreach leaders and myself and my friend Chris and my wife. And we're just dialoguing with him because here he is in the mission field at volunteering at this school and um, volunteering with local churches in Cambodia. And he's just wrestling, if not even sure if he believes in God. So psychologically, from just a leadership standpoint, it was not a very healthy environment for him to be in. And, and I sensed that, and we were trying to help him realize that. And again, not trying to walk this line of not wanting to control or coerce or force him to make any specific decision, um, but trying to help guide him into what was healthiest for him. And, and it was just a deadlock. He was, um, he was just not budging. And, uh, and I got up and went to the bathroom. And I'm doing what you do in the bathroom. Not, not praying, not a super holy moment. And I just have this thought go through my head. It's not unbelief. It's unforgiveness. And again, similar to that moment in the truck bed, it's kind of intangible, but it just felt like the thought wasn't my own. It came from a different source. My imagination was not actively trying to think about solutions or reflect. It was just, it just floated up in my consciousness. Um, so the thought again was, it's not unbelief, it's unforgiveness. And again, this guy Luke, his whole issue around Christianity was he had all these philosophical arguments that he wrestled with belief in God and the rationality of believing in God and being a Christian. And I walk back out to the table. I sit down and kind of, I'm a little nervous to say it. feels a little bit random and like a Hail Mary. And finally I interject and totally off topic, I just say, hey Luke, um, random question for you. Um, Is there anyone in your life that you feel like you hold unforgiveness towards? And everyone else kind of goes quiet and is a little confused by my question because uh, it didn't really make any logical sense why I should be asking it. And, and I see Luke's hands start to clench and his face starts to redden and his starts to tremble a little. And he, there's some anger flaring up in his eyes. His pupils are dilating and he goes... <laughs> He begins to unfold, basically, this long narrative of um, a handful of relationships in his life, a couple teachers, a friend, who he has this deep, deep bitterness and hatred towards. These are people who had hurt him, um, traumatized him in some way, and he just couldn't let go of the hurt. And this is years past many of these events. And I remember at one point, really distinctly, he said, I can't, I can't let go, I can't forgive them because it would require me to let go of my power over them. And whew, it was an intense um, learning moment in ministry, to say the least. And one, just for the value of discernment and hearing God. And, and two for exposing to me the, what we've been discussing and the, the, the framework I've been presenting in this whole lecture of the inextricable, intimate interweaving of our personal stories and our personal, emotional, subjective experiences and our objective, air quotes, objective, rational thoughts about God or the divine the intimate connection between our our culture, both in the broad sense and our personal culture internally, and our theology, our belief of God. And I think in many ways this story um, has set the trajectory for me in the last decade of growing in leadership and and my own personal sense of a call to pastoral ministry and what pastoral ministry looks like in this modern age. And um, I think in many ways it's, it's the departure point. That story is the departure point for my whole goal for running this course and for anyone listening. And it's, it's yes, that you would see the beauty and brilliance of God to meet us in our mess and in our 
questions about theology and culture. Um, and also that for you personally, it would push you to develop a sense of deep self-awareness. And in that, not, not a self-awareness in the secular sense, but a self-awareness of yourself before God, and that that would bring a sense of stability to your faith in a time and cultural moment where there seems to be anything but stability. And um, there's this brilliant quote by a guy named A.W. Tozer. He says, The most important thing about a person is what comes into their mind when they think about God. The most important thing about a person is what comes into their mind when they think about God. And I agree with Tozer to a degree. I agree that our picture of God determines a great deal in our lives. And even people who don't believe in God, their picture of the divine or their picture, whatever in their life gives them an ultimate sense of meaning, determines and dictates a lot of things in their lives. But none of us form these ideas, as I've been arguing this whole time, in a vacuum. The honest fact is that our awareness our awareness of self limits or expands our spiritual maturity. The journey of discipleship is simultaneously dominated then by two interdependent movements. Thus, to supplement Tozer's quote, we need to survey some wisdom of others. For example, St. Augustine wrote in 400 AD in his book, The Confessions, How can you draw close to God when you are far from yourself? He then prays, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself so that I may know Thee. About 800 years later, a German theologian named Meister Eckhart said, No one can know God who does not first know himself. And the Swiss leader of the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin, wrote in his massive volume, The Institutes of Christian Religion, There is no knowledge of God without knowledge of self. And there is no knowledge of self without knowledge of God. And he later writes and clarifies further, Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But these are connected by many ties. It is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. Or a contemporary source, a pastor named Pete Schizero out of New York City, he writes it almost more simply this way. He says, We cannot be more spiritually mature than we are emotionally mature. And even in the life of Jesus, we see this principle that the foundation of Jesus' ministry was his awareness of his own identity, something he had to grow into as a human and learn. He had to learn and come to believe an identity that he was, in fact, the incarnate external manifestation of God, that he was the Messiah that the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied about in the world and on the earth. And the Apostle Peter, the the foundation of the church, his life demonstrates the difference between the cultural and Christian versions of self-awareness, right? In in secular culture, self-awareness is just the journey of self-discovery and self-actualization. It's the futile attempt to give yourself an identity. But self-awareness in the Christian framework is the story of a man named Peter who thought he was brave in his own strength. But then in the moment of trial, in the moment of his best friend's betrayal, he was proved to be a coward full of fear. And Peter's story reveals the heart of God. It reveals the heart of his friend Jesus, who loved him and chose him to lead, even though he knew Peter was full of fear. And you see, this is where the theological and the cultural, the theological and the personal come to merge, where the reality of the story of Scripture is not just abstract truths, but it's, it's inviting us to be participants and to get caught up in this reality called the God story, this reality of the gospel and new creation on the earth, that there's a new way to be human, that the scriptures reveal as much about the truth of God's character as they do about the truth of who God sees us to be. So the journey of self-awareness is one of discovering our brokenness and simultaneously the scandalous sufficiency of God's unfailing love for us. 
more about breaking off our false ideas of who we are and replacing them with the truth of what God thinks about us. When Peter became self-aware, he did not discover that he was a snowflake, a beautiful individual unique from every other human. He realized that his life was not his own and that he was unconditionally loved in spite of his flaws. And so the invitation and goal of this course is that we would learn to embrace reality and trust that we will find God there. As David Benner writes, reality must be embraced before it can be changed. And so the last imagery I kind of leave you with, um, there's at least two aspects to this journey of awareness and stability. Kind of almost a metaphor I'll give you to try and remember this. The first is a compass. As followers of Jesus, we need this compass. We need an internal and very personal trust in our ability to hear God's voice as he speaks to us about ourselves, about others. And through this process, he's going to unfold kind of what I was just talking about with Peter, our fundamental calling as children of God, as deeply loved and accepted. And also, he's going to unveil and unfold our unique vocational calling of how we are supposed to uniquely build the kingdom on the earth. And this is important in the practice of practicing what I'd call personal discernment, right? Your compass. Then we also need a map. We need to have an understanding of the external, more objective. This is the wisdom of reality as it is. And we all navigate life with certain understandings, expectations, beliefs. I want you to picture all of this kind of meshing together and forming this mental map. It's like a Google Maps in your brain to help you navigate life. And I love this quote by uh, a writer, psychologist named M. Scott Peck. He says, uh, he was a psychologist and counselor who became a follower of Jesus later in life. He says, mental health is dedication to reality at all costs. In many respects, we all function with cognitive maps that help us make sense of all the data that's pouring in. We organize it, draw some meaning from it, from it, and sadly, in times like our current cultural moment, we just try to survive it and cope. And this becomes important in the practice of cultural discernment. So the compass is your personal discernment, and the map is cultural discernment as you try to navigate your choices in life. And now both your compass and your map are colored by your own experiences, traditions, and the stories you believe. But it's kind of, again, the fundamental claim of this whole course, and what I'm hoping you will leave encouraged and discovering, is that God is sufficient to come and continually meet us in those stories, in our experiences, in our traditions, in our brokenness. And so I hope this has served as a sufficient warm-up. It's obviously much more than a warm-up. Some of you might already be wanting to tap out. Um, and for those listening along, next week we will introduce Stanley Grenz in more depth and how his life work so beautifully engages these very topics and questions. For those participating in group discussions, I'll be sending some prompting questions to reflect on prior to our time together this week. Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.